This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. The Coin Bureau podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Coin Bureau podcast. This is Guy and his good friend, Mike. Hello. Hello, Mike. And uh, today we are talking about all things crypto. All things crypto. But where are we today? Where are we recording from? Yeah. I'm glad you asked, Mikey. So today we've uh, we've ta- taken our recording studio and we're recording from Elon Musk's personal bathroom at SpaceX headquarters. And I'll just sort of describe our surroundings a little bit for the listeners. For maybe for those of you who haven't been inside Elon Musk's personal bathroom before, it's it's very spacious. Mm. Um, I don't know if you can hear that, that echo. Um, there's a slightly odd smell 
Um, yeah. But there's, I mean, that may be something to do with the ashtray near the toilet. Um, and on the back of the door, there's a big picture of Jeff Bezos. Um, <laughs> and there's kind of darts sticking out of it all around. And I, th- what I think he's been doing, or whoever's been using this bathroom, has been sat on the, on the toilet and has been throwing the darts from there. And it's quite a distance. I mean, it's a good sort of... What, what would you say, about 10 metres? Yeah. So, I mean, he's... Ironically, there's Amazon packages everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's clearly a man of double standards. Yeah. Good acoustics, though, for, for a bathroom. Really good. I mean, yeah. again, I'd expect that. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope he doesn't come in. <laughs> I hope he doesn't <sighs> come in because we, we haven't got permission. <laughs> no. Um, I thought you were going to ask him, you thought I was going to ask him, wires were crossed. Um, and yeah, so Elon, if you're listening to this, um, thanks and sorry. Yeah. Okay. So shall I, before we go on, shall I talk about the coin bureau slightly? Um, or should I address the lie that I spoke earlier in the introduction? Um, I think maybe address the lie first of all, address the lie first of all. Okay. I said in this podcast that we're going to talk all things crypto. That is true generally, but for this episode, actually, we're barely going to talk about crypto at all. In fact, we might not even mention it. Um, I know that may sound weird for a podcast that's supposedly all about crypto, um, but today we're going to be talking about money and how it works. And I think this is really important. When I was first researching crypto, when I first got into Bitcoin and all that sort of stuff, one of the things I noticed quite early on was that I had to I had to go back and think about money in general. Yeah. And how I understood it and how I, again, sort of challenged my conceptions of it. And once I got that all square, I found that Bitcoin and crypto made, made more sense. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what I thought we could do today. We just have a, a little dive into the history of money. N- nothing comprehensive, nothing um, too deep. But just a, a, a look at money, how it's evolved, um, how we use it, how we uh, how we used to use it and how we use it now. Um, and some instances of what used to pass for money, yeah. all that sort of stuff. I think it could be really interesting. I think it's a, it's a great place to start, Guy. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Um, and I should say, obviously, the Coin Bureau, uh, for those who don't know, is everyone's one-stop shop for crypto education. We have our YouTube channel, million plus subscribers. Have I mentioned that recently? No. Ah, well, there, now you know. So we have our YouTube channel. We also have websites. How many subscribers? Uh, One million plus. Plus, plus what? Plus one. (laughs) One million and one. No, we're, um, uh, last time I looked, we were at about 1.4 million. Jeez. Yeah. Louise. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm pretty I'm pretty pleased. So like and subscribe. Yes, please. <laughs> We've also got a website which is full of educational material um, mm-hmm. and not so many videos of me for people who like to read. Exactly. Exactly. Those types. I think they still exist. We also have our various social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I know you're personally addicted to all three of those. So there's, yeah, no, there's no need to. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's no need to blow smoke up my ass about that one. Uh, I also have a weekly newsletter that I send out. Um, and now, of course, this podcast is part of the Coin Bureau stable. Yet another thoroughbred in that Coin Bureau stable. Uh, on that note, let's start this whole thing then. Let's start with a bit of a thought experiment um, and imagine a world without money. And I wonder if I wonder if we could get sort of a sort of slightly transitional sound. Yeah. Yeah. So... A world without money. <laughs> I'm quite enjoying this. 
Let's imagine ourselves then um, to be living in a small economy, so a village, say, in the dim and distant past. Um, so I guess sort of around the time that maybe some episodes of Game of Thrones are set. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, medieval or perhaps modern day Afghanistan. Yes. You know, a, a society um, that is kind of relatively unsophisticated, um, doesn't have an awful lot of uh, technology. So, yeah, we're imagining ourselves in this village in either uh, Westeros or Afghanistan somewhere. And there's a sort of kind of subsistence farming, hand to mouth kind of existence vibe going on. Um, and I guess what that means is that everything that we use, everything that the people living in this small economy uses, they either they either have to kind of make themselves or grow themselves. There's no sort of, you, you can't order in. There's no Amazon. No, or DoorDash. Or DoorDash, or yeah, or any sort of, There's. I don't think they've even got Deliveroo. Wow. Yeah, this is how primitive we're talking. Really, really primitive. I mean, it's horrifically primitive, you might say. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let's. we're imagining ourselves in this. Um, now, let's say, for the sake of argument, that your job is chickens. You're a chicken farmer, say. You've got a lot of chickens. Um, and I'm slightly lower down the social scale. Uh, I farm, uh, I'm a sort of, I grow vegetables and um, perhaps I have a lot of turnips. So um, let's imagine the sort of situation. You're kind of, you're a bit chickened out. I'm a bit turniped out. So we decide that we want a bit of variety in our respective diets. Uh, anyhow, yes. So um, we're both slightly tired of our current diet. So I decide that I want a bit of your chicken and you decide that yeah a bit of turnip would would lighten things up a bit mix things up a little bit so everything's fine right we can just do a straight swap um now obviously we'd have to calculate just how many turnips a chicken is worth mm. obviously i don't think we could do one for one no yeah unless it was a really big turnip but or a very or a very small poor chicken <laughs> a poor <laughs> yeah yeah one wing yeah. Half a beak. Yeah, just obviously not being cared for very much. No. Well. Yeah. So, um this is a this is a situation that we find ourselves in that economists call a coincidence of wants. Yes. And this is fine when it occurs because you have something I want, I have something you want, and we can make an exchange. Yes. But we don't need to look very far beyond this to realize that that's going to break down pretty quickly. Um, and that coincidence of once is not going to occur all that often because the next time that you fancy a bit of variety or I fancy a change from turnips or anything like that, um, we could have a problem because you don't want you might not want any more turnips. No. Um, so you come along and I'd be like, hey, Mike, that chicken was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, Mrs. Guy did some great work with it. Um, how about another? And you, you could, you'd be something along the lines of, well, yeah, I wasn't wild about those turnips. Yeah. So yeah, this coincidence of once doesn't happen very often. So the limitations of a system like this become pretty obvious. Um, and if we're just sort of exchanging amongst one another, so it becomes very, very difficult. So I would have, if I was determined to get my hands on your chicken, <laughs> then but you're not willing to accept turnips, then I have a problem. I have to, I have to go to another villager who, has, who maybe specialises in something else. That I want. So you need to know what I want yeah. and then find it and hope that the person who's supplying what I want also wants what you're giving. Exactly, exactly. 
And in if only there was something that could facilitate the easier transfer of goods. Yes, exactly, exactly. So um, now this is obviously this sort of economy that we're talking about. This this small economy is is what's known as a barter economy. We're just we're just bargaining with each other. So I would go off and I'd hopefully find someone who was selling I don't know swords, um, and I could persuade them to to give me a sword for a certain amount of time. Then you wouldn't need to buy the chicken. Yeah, then I could, <laughs> could just, just take the chicken. I could just kill you and take your chicken. <laughs> and before you know it, the whole place has descended into anarchy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you can see how a barter economy doesn't doesn't on the face on the face of it work. Quite well. clunky. Quite clunky. Yeah. And what it, and one of the one of the um, byproducts of it is that there isn't much sort of specialization. There isn't much innovation because if someone makes or grows something that not many people want, some, something that's quite specialized, then they're going to be unable in all probability to swap it for more useful things. Mm. So if you only make swords, for instance, once everyone in the village has a sword, you're you're going to run out of options. Mm. So, as you say, we need some sort of way in which we can exchange goods uh, without having to barter. So there's a sort of stifling of innovation. People don't really specialise. The economy remains very, very basic in this sense. So as you say, yeah, perhaps we need we need some sort of way of exchanging things without actually having to barter amongst ourselves. Yeah. Now, a lot of people believe that this is where money comes from, um, that initially humans engaged in barter, human societies were barter economies and everyone sort of slowly came to this realization and that is where we get modern money now before we go on i should i should point out um that there is there's no real evidence of this as far as as far as i could tell research before pens and paper were invented well yeah so there's there was no one writing these sort of things down obviously and i guess a barter economy wouldn't leave any evidence anyway no podcast about it or anything there like were, that not even that wow yeah i mean this is how i can't i can't I can't over-egg, I can't overstate how basic this economy is. I mean, they didn't even have regular TV. Yeah, I know. Let's quickly talk about some useful terms. There are just a couple of useful terms that I want to flag up. They're going to, they're going to appear a few times when we talk about money. The first is something called saleability. And the easiest way to describe this uh, saleability is the ease with which something can be sold. The amount of demand for something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How easy it is to to exchange something, to sell something. Um, now, there are three different types of saleability. The saleability across time. Mm. So this is how well something holds its value over time. Now, um, if you think of a turnip, say, a turnip is not going to be a great store of any kind of well. It's not going to have much saleability over time because it will get rotten. Yes, it's going to go off. Yeah. There's the famous sort of turnip window. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that all economists get talk your about. turnips <laughs> quickly. <laughs> Tur that turnip window's closing. Whereas a chicken, you just kill it when you want it. Yeah. If you if you want it dead, it could just it, be a pet chicken. It could just be a pet chicken. I mean, chickens have uh, several several um, benefits, and we'll t we'll talk about this when we look at commodity money. Um, but chickens, obviously, yeah. I mean, they do keep their value across time, although they do have an annoying habit of dying. Mm. Like all living things, a turnip rots, a chicken will eventually die. Mm. Um, but chickens do have other advantages, which are eggs and feathers. 
Exactly. Exactly, which we'll touch on in a minute. Um, so the other forms of scalability, one is saleability, uh, I should say. The other forms of saleability um, are saleability across scales. So that is how easily something can be converted into larger or smaller units. Turnip, chop up. Yeah, I could give you half a turnip, a quarter mm. of a turnip. Chicken, slightly more difficult. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to be happy that the person taking half a chicken wanted half a dead chicken. Yeah. Um, you can't subdivide a live chicken. No. Um, which obviously detracts from its value. And then we have saleability across space. Um, and this is how easily something can be transported. Um, a chicken can be a chicken. Chickens and turnips are fairly saleable across space, mm -hmm. although you wouldn't want to try and transport too many chickens. No. The more chickens you try and transport, the harder it is. And kind of ditto with turnips. You know, if you need to move a thousand turnips from point A to point B, you're going to struggle. Mm. Um, you're going to have to get yourself some sort of card. Let's talk quickly about metalists versus chartlists. Moving swiftly on from chickens. <laughs> We will get back to chickens. Good. I, I should I should remind listeners that not this podcast episode isn't going to be focused solely on chickens, mm -hmm. but chickens will be mentioned okay. quite a few times. Now, metalists versus chartlists is what I want to talk about, and I see you I see you sort of shaking your head there and pursing your lips. And I'm I not sure what these are. Uh, metalists, I thought, were people with long hair who headbang. Yeah. Chartlists. No idea. Maybe. Yeah. People who went to Charterhouse. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, I had no idea of metalism and chartalism until I until I sort of went back and, and, and researched money when I was looking into Bitcoin. Mm. Um, and I initially sort of saw these two terms and thought, this is this is very specialized stuff. I don't need to worry about this. But when I dug down into it a little more, it was quite interesting because there are basically two schools of thought mm. regarding the nature of money. And what the one that we've just been talking about uh, or touching on concerning chickens and, and other things uh, is this idea of metallism. And this is the view that certain commodities, certain precious metals perhaps, but other commodities as well, were chosen or evolved to take the place of barter. And that's kind of what you said as well. You know, you said when we were when 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 we were talking about this barter economy and watching it kind of fall apart in front of our eyes. Yeah. When you when we realised that you didn't like turnips, um, and you said we need some form of we need some coin. coin. This is a metalist point of view. Uh, metalism is the idea that certain commodities evolved or were chosen to take the place of barter, um, and it's the idea as well that a currency needs to have an actual thing backing it, something tangible behind it. Uh, and gold is the best example here. So the opposing view to metallism is what is known as chartalism. Now, this is slightly more complex. This argues um, that money is, in fact, kind of an embodiment of an agreement between people and the society they live in. Yeah. Okay. I can see you. It's it's tricky that. So the guy who first came up with the term was a German economist. He was called uh, George Friedrich Knapp. And mm. he said uh, money is a creature of law um, rather than it being any sort of commodity. And very simply, uh, chartalists, I, I guess the way to explain... It's like a universal agreement. Yeah. Yeah. And what's, what chartalism argues is that money kind of grew up as a way of settling kind of obligations or debts between people. So there wasn't a conscious decision that we need, oh, we need something to take the place of barter. 
But uh, what came first, essentially, um, was death. The chicken or the turnip? The chicken, which came first. <laughs> yeah, and this is the whole, yeah, chartalism is built around the argument of the chicken and the turnip. Okay. That famous argument. Yeah. Um, I guess the most simple way that I found to to describe the difference between metalists and chartalists, metalists believe money is a tangible thing, while chartalists tend to see it more as a concept. So are these two theories... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, these are two conflicting theories of how of how money, money came about, and there there are two schools. And I think, like anything, the the truth is probably somewhere, somewhere in between. Yeah. yeah, somewhere in between. Um, and again, I I think a lot of chartalists will point out that um, again, there's no evidence that any sort of barter society existed. Um, and we obviously know that barter takes place, but not at not at a sort of societal level. It might, you know, you and I might swap something. Um, I, do you remember when we were at, uh, at boarding school? Yeah. Yes. Um, there was a kind of barter economy there. Oh, not for pogs, no. Not for pogs. <laughs> for booze, booze, fags and porn mags. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Booze, cigarettes and porno. Yeah, so this idea, so the chartalist idea is kind of money as a concept. And they say that um, perhaps the, the idea that actually before money there was debt. And the way that money grew up was as a way of settling these obligations or debts. So let's say, for instance, that I needed a chicken. Yeah. Um, and you were prepared to you were prepared to give me one. Therefore, I was in your debt, and at some point, I would have to pay back that debt. Mafioso style. Yeah. You know, I'd, it would be. You yeah. come to me on the day of my chicken's wedding. <laughs> Someday, I will come to you. And I will ask you to do something for me. Gold member again. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one voice. Yeah. I've got one sort of comedy voice and it, it, it sort of jags between various characters. Yeah. Um, so I owe you a chicken. But let's say that let's say that we don't necessarily live in the same village. Um, maybe I'm a sort of traveling merchant or something like that. Got it, yeah. Um, so we would we would have to remember these debts and obligations would have to be remembered um, and settled at some point in the future. And it may be that I would come back and perhaps uh, we would both remember that I owed you a chicken. I go, oh, Mike, here's that chicken I owe you from yonder ago. years. Yeah. But what if there was a lot of time involved? What if it might be years before I next saw you? I come back and you go, ah, guy, just, just, just the man, just the man. Where's that chicken? And because we're, we don't write anything down and because a lot of time has evolved, we go, what chicken? I don't know you're a chicken. And you can see. Well, feel my sword. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and that and that's where sort of violence comes in, and and everything falls apart. Yeah, I guess in these instances that maybe I owing you, or be, or, or or being indebted to you in some way, either because you gave me a chicken or I stole a chicken, whatever it might be, both instances can be simplified if there is some sort of monetary system in place. Yeah, and this is the kind of chartalist viewpoint. This says that that money evolved to to fill this to fulfill this role to fulfill these kind of debts and obligations and it's not it's not just um it's not just people exchanging things or or borrowing things or whatever like that it could be things like a dowry or something like that Got it, know, yeah. if, I, if I wanted to marry your daughter this idea of of some sort of money existing um would make this whole thing easier and this is the chartless point of this is the chartless view um that it evolved to to fill this sort of role um and crucially, some sort of without this, without this idea of settling these debts, either sort of instantly or, or, or further down the line, um, 
And bearing in mind that most people would have been illiterate, so there wouldn't have been writing it down. Yeah, there yeah. wouldn't have been any sort of many sort of written records. Um, we'd need a lot of trust in place, uh, and uh, we'll see later. I think pro probably in the next episode when we look at the sort of modern financial system more, uh, the role of trust will become uh, really important, and we'll talk a lot more about trust. But I think at this stage you can already see that you sort of trusting that I will settle this debt at some point in As the future. Flaws. Exactly. Exactly. So let's move on. I want to talk about, before we talk about anything else, before we go too much deeper into the history of money or anything like that, I want to, I want to think of money uh, from the point of view of it being a technology, money as tech. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a really useful way of looking at it. Money is uh, a, a technology like anything else. And as people get more adept at working at it, it becomes more useful and more advanced. So in the in the context of money, let's say um, better metal working skills. So as humans got better working with metal, um, it became possible to create coins. And as we got even better at working with metal, uh, those coins were able to be created to sort of uniform sizes or uniform weights. So they all look the same. Um, they were fungible, which means they could, you know, they could be readily interchanged. One coin of a certain size and weight was worth the same as another coin that mm. looked the same. And this is really important. This idea of standardization. And this meant um, that uh, when we talk about coins and, and things like that, you know, this was if everything if we knew if we had confidence that a coin uh, was worth a certain amount, we could tell by looking at it, then um, that saved us having to weigh out things, d deal in any other sorts of money. And so do you see that as um, as we become better at working with this technology that is money, it, we find it can do more for us. Yeah. And this is something um, we'll, I think we'll just keep circling back to this over the Money episode. is a technology. Money is a technology, yeah, like many other things. And I think thinking in these terms is a good way to approach the history of more modern forms. I, I mean, it's just as a way as like, like writing something down is a technology. Yeah. Money is a technology. Yeah. Wheel is a technology. It's, it's an advancement of knowledge. Exactly. Exactly. And again, I didn't, it's maybe not the sort of thing that you would automatically. No, I mean, consider. when you think about it, it makes sense, but it doesn't it, like you, because nowadays you just think technology is a phone or, you know, a computer or something a bit more advanced like that. But yeah, I suppose it's an early form of tech. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Like the wheel or yeah. the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> The chicken turnip the ch transportation system. Yeah. When, yeah, the ch yeah, the chicken. Yeah, when when people finally got that nailed, the world yeah. the world advanced massively. I mean, that I'm was just, the. I can happened. imagine your Amazon packages being delivered by chicken. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, those bloody chickens! Late again. Um, so. Let's think about the role of money then. Uh, if we go back to our village in Westeros, stroke Afghanistan. It's pretty obvious, as we said, that some form of money is needed in order to people for people to buy goods from each other. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it gets way too complicated. And without this, things are, are tricky and an actual trade would be difficult. Um, so when it comes to defining what money is now, this is the kind of official line. There are kind of three roles that uh, that money is is expected to play. Hit me. OK. Are you ready for this? Yeah, this is this is huge. So the first role is a medium of exchange. Now, what, what do I mean by this? So 
a medium of exchange, a way of buying and selling goods or settling debts. So uh, I want to buy your chicken. I don't have anything you want in return, but I can use another means of payment. But crucially, you have to then be able to use this means of payment that I give you in For, the same way with someone else. Got it. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So a medium of exchange. Um, and the really important part of it is that this form of payment has to be accepted by everyone else in the economy that we're operating. Yeah. So that stops me from declaring that my turnips are a medium of exchange and this is what we're all going to be using um, because everyone would turn around and say, uh, no, guy, that's not what we're doing. Actually allergic to turnips. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting my sword. Yeah. <laughs> I'm allergic to them too. <laughs> I, yeah, I've got a real, I have a really bad reaction. Bad reaction. To Whenever I, like, my sword comes into contact with me, it just gets quite red. It's really bad for my skin. Yeah. Um, so the second function of money, the second role of money is as a store of value. Um, and we talked, we touched upon this with saleability over time. So a store of value holds its value over time. And for the very least, that has to be in the in the kind of short to medium term, I would think. Um, so again, a turnip or a chicken is kind of useless in this respect. A, a chicken is probably better than a turnip because a turnip will rot pretty quickly. But a chicken will hopefully, especially if you care for it as well as I'm sure you do care for your chickens, it may last slightly longer. Mm. But obviously, in the long term, years plus, this deteriorates. So, if I use it to, if I use this 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 form of money, uh, if I use it to buy a chicken from you, you need to be confident that you'll be able to buy something of equivalent value, perhaps another chicken, with it in the future. You'll be able to put it under your mattress and remember it's there. Can't and put a chicken under your mattress. No. I've tried. Trust me, <laughs> it did not work out well. Not for the chicken. No. I can't think it was a spatchcock. <laughs> I can't think it was a great night's sleep for you either. No. Yeah. So this is why uh, this idea of a store of value is why money nowadays tends to consist of non-perishable goods. An inanimate object. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to be something that doesn't uh, degrade or rot or or go off or anything like that, because that would obviously be pretty useless. Then we have the third function of money, and this is as a unit of account. Now, um, this means that it can be used to record the value of what you own or compare the price of different items. Do you see what I mean? So, um, Yeah, I, I kind of get because the value of things will change. So if with supply and demand, if you've got, um, you know, a, a, an abundance of turnips, the People, and everyone has loads of turnips and people won't they've got options of where they can get them and the price will come down so yeah. uh yeah that makes sense yeah and it's something a unit of account um it functions well when you can measure out your entire sort of net worth if you like if we use a modern money you could probably quite accurately calculate what you're worth in british pounds yeah uh you know you seven could, <laughs> a whole seven seven that's the, that's the, the moment. That's the entire value of all your assets, everything you own. Yeah, I had a bad week. <laughs> bad week at the casino. Before that, it was a lot higher, I promise. Um, yeah. So, and and obviously most, um, you know, all, all kind of national currencies these days function quite well as a unit of account in that people can, people can tot up how much they own, so long as that currency remains relatively stable. Yeah. If it's being massively devalued, um, then less so. Venezuela, yeah. Now, some people, um, well, so yeah, I think the last point just to make uh, on on the unit of account thing, it needs to make sort make some sort of standardisation possible. 
Um, so if we're using this currency, again, everyone, ideally everyone's using it and we can calculate sort of roughly where we are, what people own and stuff. And obviously we can do that fairly easily, you and, you and, you and I in Great British Pounds. A lot more difficult to calculate what we're worth in turnips. Well, I mean, if you're worth seven, seven it's, it's, like, it's about 25 <laughs> turnips. <laughs> so, I mean, things are looking up already. Yep. On that note, should we take a break? This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them, but with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly, so get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. We are back. Welcome back. Shall we talk about some early forms of money then? Yes. Um, we're not going to talk any more about chickens. Or turnips. Or turnips. I don't think we're... Well, they we'll may see. come up again. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about some more early forms of money. Yes. Okay. So, however money came about, whether you whether you subscribe to the metalist or the chartalist point of view, or whether like you, Mike, you're sort of on the fence and... A little bit of both. A little bit of both. A little buy when it comes to the chartalist, mentalist. <laughs> mentalist. <laughs> <laughs> Are you chartless? Whatever it is. Whatever you call it. You go both ways. Whichever one it is. Um, Money has been in use in some form or another for thousands of years. And we reckon that perhaps the first form of money uh, was what is now known as commodity money. Mm. So this would be physical things that have value in themselves. Um, So a good example here would be a chicken. (laughs) I <laughs> <laughs> just thought we weren't coming back. Fine. No. Okay. Um, I think a better example would be something like livestock or grain. Yeah. Um, and livestock, I, I suppose cattle in this, because there is lots of evidence that cattle has been used as a form of exchange. Dowries. Dowries, Three yeah. camels for a lady. Exactly. Yes, I remember being on holiday in Egypt many years ago, about 20 years ago or something, and some guy came up to me and he offered me 100 camels for my sister. Mm. Um, now what I, did you do with those hundred camels? Well, I still have some of them. <laughs> um, and I think probably he was kind of playing up to what, you know, this kind of stereotype that, that Westerners have yeah. of people, of, of Egyptian people or other or other people. But um, it was interesting in that I think this, this idea of exchanging livestock, exchanging the likes of camels or cattle has been going on for thousands of years. And I think recently there were instances of cattle being stolen in Kenya uh, in order to pay a dowry, as you mentioned earlier. So uh, these have these have definitely been used as money of some sort. Um, and as we said, a chicken or a, cow or a cow or something would be uh, a form of commodity money because it has value itself. Um, a cow can give you a, a cow can give you milk. Um, it can give you meat. It can also give you more cows. I think this is worth pointing yeah. out as well. You know, it's kind of like an interest bearing um, asset yeah. in a way. Um, and at the end of it. At the end of it, you can also slaughter it and eat it um, and make its skin into a nice coat. Sandals. Sandals. That's what that's like a nice pair. Nice of pair of leather sandals. Leather sandals. OK, well, um, so when we were talking earlier about the idea of uh, saleability over time and saleability over space and all this sort of thing, something like a cow would be quite useful in that respect mm. um, because a cows live for a few years. They're also quite easy to transport in a way in that they kind of get themselves from A to B 
under their own steam. I mean, you kind of have to direct them a bit, but mm-hmm. that, that money is, is transportable. It's a little more difficult uh, to divide a cow up. Um, so you can't, you know, unless, as I say, as, as we touched on with the chicken, unless you want to actually kill it. And expire if, it. Yeah. Uh, cattle can be uh, a decent medium of exchange um, because, you know, you can you could say, well, this cow is worth 20 chickens, perhaps, or 30 chickens or a certain number of pigs or a certain weight of grain or something like that. Um, a reasonable long term store of value, but not too long. Um, and obviously, we talked about this idea of, yeah, it produces a lot of other things. It has value in itself. So commodity money itself has been around for a long, long time. And incidentally, we get a couple of modern terms, modern monetary terms from commodity money. Um, So the first, the Latin word for cattle is pecus. Uh, And that's from that we get our modern word pecuniary, which means of or relating to money. Not going to lie. Never heard of that word before in my life. (laughs) But you could say you're in you're having pecuniary difficulties. You could. I'm having difficulties in understanding what pecuniary <laughs> means pecuniary yeah it's not a it's perhaps not a word you'd use every day but it's certain certainly a uh, it's certainly a word it's certainly a word it, yeah yeah now another popular commodity that was used as money was salt oh. and salt has certain advantages it's fairly easy to transport mm-hmm. it lasts a long time unless you sort of unless you soak it in water. Mm-hmm. So as long as you can keep it dry, um, it can hold its value over time. I don't think salt goes off. I don't think so. I don't um, and it can also be quite usefully divided into smaller amounts. So you can weigh out a certain number, a certain weight of salt. Mm. Um, so, you know, you wouldn't have to hand over an entire bag of salt. You could weigh it out yeah. into smaller amounts. So Rams, it, ounces, keys. Exactly. Exactly. Um now, obviously, salt is kind of valuable in and of itself because you can flavor food with it. And also, I think, crucially, in, in more... Um, Preserve. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not only a valuable commodity, but it also form, uh, fills the role of, uh, of commodity money quite well. Uh, and we get another popular word for this. Um, so the Latin word for salt is salus. Uh, and from that, we get our word salary. Oh. Which is, I think, a word that you probably a, a little more familiar with. I have heard of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, Roman legionaries uh, were quite often uh, paid part of their wages in salt. That's interesting. Yeah. Not that everything else hasn't been very interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's the first bit I've gone, okay, that's, I'm going to repeat a, that down the pub. That's the first bit that's been really... Do you know what salary means? <laughs> Do you know what you get? Sir? It was it quite was. a peculiar term. <laughs> <It's a> pecu- <laughs> have you said that right? Yes. <laughs> Well, it's a quite a what term? <coughs> Sorry, what was that, Mike? It's a prefer. Do you have that five salts you owe me? Salus, salt. <laughs> Give me some salt. So let's think about some other early forms of money. Uh, another one was cowrie shells. Cowries are a species of sea snail. And cowrie shells uh, are known to have been used as money in China, I think as far back as around 1200 BC. And apparently... Uh, when I was researching this, uh, also apparently in parts of East Africa up until about the 1950s. Lee sells seashells. Exactly. Um, and the Linnaean or the zoological term for cowries is Monteria, Mon- Montaria Moneta. Which is where money comes from. Uh, well, I think the term money, the term moneta again is Latin. Um, Monetary. Uh, yeah. 
But Juno, the, the Roman goddess Juno, was known as Juno Moneta, and she was sort of associated with money. And that's where we get words like monetary and also the word mint. Okay, so not well, from this thing. Not from this, no. But, um, but don't Cowrie's- listen, to, listeners. Don't listen to Mad Mike Mooch. <laughs> don't listen to him. Don't listen He's to speculating. Me. I'm just here to bounce off ideas. He's the smart one. <laughs> I'm the idiot in this situation <laughs> to make you feel better. Quite. Thanks for summing that up for the listeners, Mike. Um, so, yes, the Linnaean or zoological term for carries is Monteria Moneta. Monteria Moneta, man. Money, money. Money, so money, good money. They named it twice. So, what other, uh, another popular form of money in Africa many, many uh, centuries ago was agribeads. Agribeads were popular in Africa. Um, they were decorated beads made mainly from glass, um, and they could be sort of strung together to make jewellery. And I think they were thought to have sort of magical and or medicinal properties. So, they were highly prized in Africa. Um, and, but the problem was that because glassmaking technology in Africa was very limited, they obviously had value there because they were rare. Got it. But when traders from Europe came along and encountered these agri beads, they realized that they could make them a lot cheaper back home because obviously glassmaking, this idea again of money as an evolving technology, glassmaking was a lot more advanced in Europe. So when they came back, they suddenly had all these Lots of agri beads. Yeah. But they were quite clever about it. I think they didn't um, flood the market. Exactly. Yeah. They sort of introduced them in dribs and drabs. Um, so they didn't they, they knew that if they suddenly turned up with sacks of these things, um, then they would arouse suspicion. But also they would have the effect of devaluing the currency completely. So yeah. they introduced it very gradually. Um, and the and the tragic consequences of this obviously were that they were able to acquire resources, land, etc. from well, Tragic for who? Well, tragic for... The people for, who got taken fleeced. Yes, tragic, yeah, fleeced. And I, If you're the one with the gold beads, it's pretty pretty great. Yeah, yeah. It had pretty it had pretty dire consequences. Yeah. I, I think probably this sort of helped at some point to kind of fuel the slave trade because it... Oh, out. wow. Okay, cool. It, it gave these Europeans uh, a lot of leverage. Um, it made them seem very rich, whereas in actual fact, they were just manufacturing these uh, very easily back home. So that's a that's a good example of yeah money as a tech evolving and those on the right side of it those sort of uh, those who with the more advanced tech were able to take advantage of those with less advanced tech. Mm. Now there's one more primitive form of money. I mean there are tons of different prim- uh, tons of different commodities used as money all over the world, but the last one um, that I want to talk about the last form of primitive money uh, which Bitcoiners love. Um, and this is very relevant to to crypto, and we'll kind of maybe talk about this today, but maybe in another episode as well. But the last form of primitive money is rye stones. Now, these were a currency used on the Pacific island of Yap. And these were enormous, well, not all of them enormous, but these were l- pieces of limestone uh, that cut in a circle, cut in a big disc with a hole in the middle. And these pieces of limestone could only be quarried. They weren't they weren't uh, available on the island itself. They could only be quarried from nearby islands. I think one was called, uh, I think the nearby islands of Palau and Guam, uh, which were about three or four hundred miles away by canoe. So these uh, they short, short in supply then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So these uh, these rye stones were were quarried and um, manufactured, if you like, on these neighbouring islands, brought over by canoe, and then value was attached to them. And they served as a form of currency because um, 
people would exchange them. But because they were so big, I mean, they, they ranged in size. Some were some were sort of relatively small. Um, 13 inches or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, I see that. I see, I see that look. You're Some were relatively small, um, yeah. and others were huge. Others were up, others were up to about sort of almost three meters across. Wow. Yeah. So these rye stones were then exchanged. They were used as a form of currency, but they weren't interchanged. They just stayed where they were. Uh, and the biggest ones, especially, were in sort of communal areas, sort of in the centre of villages, or in um, I think they were dancing grounds. You know, where the islanders would kind of gather to have. Massive parties, like a nightclub. Exactly, the local nightclub. Yeah, mm. and these rye stones were there, and what and the way they worked is that they were exchanged. They 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 their owners changed over time uh, as things were bought with them. You know, maybe a house or uh, used again as a dowry, um, and the islanders remembered who owned which stones. And this was ama- this was an amazing form of hard money because it was very difficult to come by. You you couldn't you couldn't easily produce more of them unless you were willing to make a hundreds of mile round trip with a potentially enormous piece of stone. So getting them from making them in the first place, quarrying them in the first place, and getting them over to Yap was an extremely difficult undertaking. Is this why Bitcoin is love it because it's it's such a a lot to mine one Bitcoin exactly. Exactly. It's it's a it's and a then it form just sort of sits there while you dance around your computer. <laughs> exactly. It fulfills I mean, that's function. what I do. That's what you. That's if you, what I. Yeah. If you found that you'd mind a bit, get Spotify on. Get the di- get the bitcoins mm. out. Have a little boogie. No, who could blame you? My um, neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So these rye stones, um, these were kind of a, a form of hard money. They were a commodity. They were very difficult to to flood the market with. And there are there are stories. I think one. They were transporting one particularly big one across, and it fell out of the canoe oh, in the nightmare. shallows um, and sank to the sank to the bottom. Um, but they still were able to use it as a form of money because, because they so went, close. "That's mine there." Uh, and then they just remembered that even though it was sitting there, uh, no one could move it, no one could nick it. Oh, because it was just that big. Yeah. How did they get it in there? Well, it needed a lot of people to it needed a lot of people to to move these things around, which again is why it's so why it's so uh, so great as a form of money. Is that is that rhinestone still there? I think so. Yeah, and well, that's on, mine now. <laughs> I think you'd have to take that it's up. Mine. I think you'd have to take that up with the with the yap with the yap islanders themselves. Very yappy. Uh, yeah. So rhinestones were a great form of currency. They were too heavy to move. They sat where they were, usually somewhere prominent, and the islanders remembered who it was who owned them, um, and they could then be exchanged for goods used in dowries, and the ownership simply transfers. So it's not a case of me having to physically give you the stone. We just and um, I think the village elders would sort of gather and everyone would kind of make a, a mental note. They go right, that's now Mad Mike's stone. Got it. Guy has given Mad Mike this stone in return. So every time you did had one of these transactions, it was uh, quite a big deal. Mm, not necessarily. Um, I think they could be used. The, the smaller rye stones could be used for smaller transactions. Got it. Um, but again, could they would they just break off bits of rye stone or? I think they had to. I, I would imagine that they had to be intact. You know, you couldn't just sort. You couldn't just, just go. Like, oh, sort. there you go. There's a couple. Of- a bit. I need some change. I'll bash <laughs> it in half. <laughs> 
But yeah, and then um, there's the story of an Irish-American captain. And oh, well, I should say also, they, they worked great as a store of value because they're stone. So they don't rot or degrade and uh, they're still there. Um, you can go to you can go to Yap today, and these rye stones are sitting around. And I think they're the, the ownership of them is still known. And I think uh, when I was researching this again, they are still occasionally used. I mean, r- the, the the Yap Islanders now use the dollar, uh, the U.S. dollar, like like so many other people. But rye stones are still used as a form of currency. And How I many rye stones to the dollar? Uh, that I'm not sure. <laughs> quite quite a few. I meant I don't know what the exchange rate is like, but uh, I don't know if that's a currency pair, uh, uh, an often traded currency. Well, next pair. time you're in Yap at uh, at the, at I, the will. I did think I'd like to Bureau de Yap, <laughs> <laughs> the Bureau de Stones. <laughs> so all these what we could call primitive forms of money were useful for a time, but their value tended to be undermined by advances in technology and the growth of more complex economies. So we saw with the agri beads. Dastardly Europeans figured out that they had better glass making, so they could just manufacture the beads. And actually, with the rye stones of Yap, um, there was a story about an Irish American captain called David O'Keefe, who was washed ashore on Yap. I think he was shipwrecked, and uh, the Yap Islanders sort of picked him, scraped him off off, off the beach, and saved his life. And uh, he spent some time on the island and realised how they were, and was shown how they were using these stones. So, as a way of showing his gratitude to them, he decided that he was going to try. And um, use dynamite. <laughs> he thought. He thought. I tell you, I, I know how I can. I know what I can do. I can go to Palau or Guam, and I can use dynamite to easily make some more. To easily get some limestone and make some more. Uh, and I think his idea was that he wanted to import. He wanted to export coconuts from Yap to. Um, uh, I don't know where it was exactly, but he wanted to export coconuts in order to make coconut oil. So he went and got some dynamite and he made some rye stones. And then he went back over to Yap and he presented these these new stones and was like, right, give me your coconuts. And I think the, 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 the chiefs, the island chiefs sort of realized what he'd done and went, right, no one accept these stones. And but a few of the islanders were convinced, you know, sort of kind of human greed took mm. over um, and were convinced to accept them and to work, you know, making harvesting coconuts for this guy. And at that point, I think the kind of the, the rye stones as, as an as an economy kind of fell apart a little bit. And that was sort of the beginning, uh, beginning of the end for them as uh, as a viable form of currency. And obviously, at this point, the world was opening up a lot more and and visiting, you know, the, the, the wider the wider economy. Um, was affected. So it's arguable how long they would have actually lasted for. But it's a great example of sort of a new technology turning up. And obviously, it would, it's some some dastardly Westerner. Um, I think this was in, you know, this was sometime in the 19th century. Um, but yeah, some dastardly Westerner turning up with uh, a dynamite and technology. <laughs> Just, <laughs> right. I'm going to use this dynamite to make myself some money. Um and yeah, so where's these old form, these older forms of money? Whereas before they were rare and hard to obtain, like the stones or like the beads, if you didn't have the glass making technology, this the the technological advantages made them easier to get hold of and thus less valuable. So, um, when we talk about the, we're going to talk, I think, in general about the 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 continued sort of evolution of money here, and this is a very general overview. Know, that we're we're involved in here. We're not going to go too exhaustive, but kind of the next step um, is going to be metal money. Mm. 
Now, you, yeah, you mentioned this earlier. So um, this idea, commodity money is pretty old, the idea of the idea of paying for things with other things that have value. But the practice of using precious metals like gold and silver, as well as kind of less precious ones like copper and bronze, has been around for, I think, over about over 4,000 years. There's evidence going back, going back um, to the times of the Egyptians and, and possibly even before. So metal money has been around for a long time. And I think one of the earliest is there's evidence that lumps of silver uh, were used, uh, approved by the state in Cappadocia, which is sort of modern day Turkey, um, uh, from around sort of 2200 BC. Uh, so these, these so they weren't necessarily made into, um, into coins into, or anything like yeah. that. But yeah, lumps of silver that could then be used by weight. Um, and so there's evidence of that. And actually banks even predate uh, predate even coinage um, because the first ones appeared around 3000 BC in Mesopotamia, which is obviously modern day uh, Iraq and Syria and, and Kuwait. Um, and these would have been used to store commodities like cattle, grain, silver, gold, whatever. So banks have been around uh, almost as long as, as money itself. And then from around kind of 700 BC, we see coins begin to emerge and they're made of silver or gold, sometimes both um, uh, metal, co uh, a substance called electrum, which is a, a mixture of silver and gold. Um, and they were originally graded by weight. Now, do you remember when we were talking about money as a technology earlier? Yeah. Basic metallurgy would have mean would meant that they were able to able to get lumps of metal to sort of weigh roughly the same. So you would have had a few sort of lumps of gold or silver or whatever, and then you would have weighed them out and counted them out like that. Uh, silver became um, quite popular around this time. It became more popular because it was more plentiful. It's still a kind of rare metal. It doesn't. It's it's not just kind of lying around, but it's a bit more plentiful than gold, and it was therefore less valuable. And this was useful because you could use it for sort of smaller transactions. Mm. Because again, handing over a quantity of gold, uh, you can only, I guess, divide a lump of gold so much until you're sort of dealing with dealing yeah. with impractical amounts. Pounds and pence, dollars and cents. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and the first round coins, they believe, emerged in China around 600 BC, uh, but they were made of kind of non-precious metal, so maybe copper, um, and their value was actually the metal itself. So, you know, the, the copper obviously has, has many uses, so they'd hand over these sort of coins and then they're valuable because copper itself is valuable. So it's kind of an overlap of commodity money and, and metal money. Copper for very small transactions, yep. silver for slightly larger transactions, and obviously we can see this as a parallel with our with our own currency today, yeah. with our coins today. And then gold obviously became better for higher value transactions. And also gold keeps better than any other metal. Now, copper obviously tarnishes, oxidizes. gets green, oxidizes, exactly. Uh, silver tarnishes as well. I mean, it's still pretty durable, but not as durable as gold. I mean, gold. I love gold. I love gold. Um, gold lasts, I mean, pretty much forever. Uh, and this was great because it meant that gold fulfilled this idea of uh, a store of value better than anything, because people now had the ability to store their wealth over generations. They knew that it wouldn't rot, it wouldn't degrade. So long as they held on to it, they knew that, that it, would, it would still be worth money further down the road. Uh, then around 800 AD, i.e. about a thousand years later, the emperor Hien Sung began issuing paper money. And this was apparently in response to a shortage of copper which, as we, as we mentioned, was sort of being used to make most Chinese coins. So he kind of, right, okay, well, here's right. some paper instead. Yeah. 
And this, you could argue, is perhaps the early birth of fiat money, money issued without anything physical backing it and valuable because the powers that be deem it to be so. So in this case, the emperor going, right, here's some paper money is valuable because I say it's valuable. Got it. It's not tied to any sort of metal or anything like that. Just trust me. Yeah, exactly. Just do what you're told or I or someone close to me will get their sword out. Yes. Yeah. Um, And the printing of this paper money seems to have gotten out of control. Uh, causing inflation. And obviously, the more money that you print, the less valuable it becomes. Oh, Mr. Sung. Mr. Sung, how could you? Uh, So, uh, and the Chinese again stopped using paper money around about the 1400s. And it seems to have re-emerged in Britain around the 1600s. Banks began storing coins in their vault and they issued notes in lieu of them. It was a bit like a receipt. An IOU. Exactly. So if you took your money to a bank in, um, in the 17th century in Britain and you put in a whole load of gold... They go, thank you very much, Mike. We will give you we'll give you your receipt for let's say let's say you deposited ten pounds of gold. Here is a receipt for ten pounds of gold. That in itself isn't much use to you. But you can then trade that with someone else. For another receipt. For another receipt, for another piece of paper. Two yeah. fives, break it, break the three seat down into <laughs> Exactly. But yeah, this so we're we're already getting towards this idea of um this paper money being issued, but it's being backed by something in a bank somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and these receipts are these receipts became a kind of currency in themselves. So that was that was where we think banknotes sort of evolved from. This idea of banks issuing receipts. Um, Then 1797, the Bank of England issued kind of smaller denomination banknotes in response. There was a shortage of gold bullion. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but uh, yeah, they so they they realised that it's no point everyone trading with big notes. Need to get some smaller ones. So. Again, we see this idea of money as a technology. The emergence of paper money is kind of another technological leap forward. Uh, it enables larger sums to be traded and money to be more easily transported because it's much easier to, to take a load of paper and go across the channel on a booze cruise, say, um, than it would be to take a massive sack of gold coins. No, not good. Yeah. No, no space in your swim shorts. Exactly. Exactly. You would have, yeah, you wouldn't have been able to. You can't swim with, with gold in your pockets. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I presume there were kind of weight restrictions on the ships like there would have been on the planes. <laughs> Can you empty your pocket, sir? What is all this? Can't go through the metal detector. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those 17th century metal detectors yeah. have picked it up and gone crazy. So again, but with like, uh, as with any new technology, as it develops, it becomes more useful, but also more dangerous. Um, and of course, paper money must have been a whole lot easier to forge. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure plenty of people sort of looked at those bank receipts and went, I can uh, make one of those. Yeah. Um, and obviously, if you do this, then more money sort of gets flooded into the system, even though it's not, not technically worth anything. And this devalues the currency as a whole. And I guess it's worth pointing out here that um, historically, the penalties for forgery have been very, very harsh. And I think in sort of medieval uh, medieval times, um, forgers sort of met pretty sticky ends, like, you know, burned at the stake or whatever like that. And up until... Not a fine. Not a fine. No, there was no sort of slap on the wrist. I've got some paper I can give you to get out of the situation. <laughs> how about I just... How about we make this go away? Do you like turnips? <laughs> no, I haven't got that many chickens. I'm sorry. Um and yeah, more laws, this is an interesting fact, more laws against forgery were passed in Britain in the early 18th century than against any other type of crime. 
So they were kind of constantly, as money was evolving really quickly, uh, they so were... So were the issues. Yeah, exactly. And the, uh, as with any technology, uh, the criminals were always kind of one step ahead, you guess. So mm. they were constantly having to issue laws. And um, yeah, the, there was, uh, the death penalty for forgery was still, was still in place for a long, long time. Good. Not until... The, not, not, Good, I, I think, say. Yeah. <laughs> and those, those damn forgers. Yeah. Yeah, meet a sticky end. So... Uh, at this point, I think we should talk about the role of the state um, in issuing and regulating the money supply. I can see you. I can see your face there, the state. Yeah. Oh, those guys. Yeah. So by the time uh, going back to going back to coinage, going back to the issuing of coinage, um, by the time it's widespread, most humans are living in pretty clearly defined states or, or kingdoms and they're ruled by some governing body or another. Um, and. Ever since we've been using money, governments, kings, emperors, whatever they may be, have understood that controlling the money supply is a big part of wielding power. Money is power. So if you, yeah, if you control the supply of money, then you, then you control your citizens. Um, so this is why uh, coins traditionally have the sovereign's head on them, serving you know, as a it's marketing. Exactly. It's kind of, yeah, it's marketing. It's marking your territory. It's going, hey... I'm in charge. Do you know why? Because that's my face. <laughs> it's my face on the money, man. <laughs> when your face is on money, you can do whatever that you want. Yeah. And it probably gave them... Now, give me my turnips. <laughs> <laughs> no more turnips than that. And your chickens. Um, and your sister. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been, yeah, it would have been a good sort of claim, wouldn't it? Um, you think it would be much easier to get money out of people if you go, yeah, give me your money. Because that's mine. It's got it's my face on it. Technically. Yeah. Technically handed over. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine our queen doing that. She, I mean, she famously doesn't carry cash. She doesn't need to. She is cash. She is cash. <laughs> take a selfie. You, take that. <laughs> there you go. Do you think she just goes into a shop and sort of stands in profile? Yes. Yeah, she sort of goes, meh, yeah. meh, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got it on a piece of paper. The real thing's here. That's, I believe that's mine. That's definitely <laughs> worth 50 quid. And so the stronger the bond between the state and money, the greater power the state is able to wield. And I guess that one of the best examples of this is the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons that Rome was so strong for so long was because it had a, it had a stable monetary system. Um, and so its citizens, Romans, were able to kind of go out across the empire and spend and amass wealth and, and project Rome's power in that way. And the relationship between money and the state has only kind of grown over time. Um, the state guarantees money by putting its its weight and power behind it. And again, this is the this kind of feeds into the idea of fiat money, um, yeah. modern day money. It's valuable because the state, with is. all its power, with all its fighter jets and uh, policemen with clubs and aircraft carriers and nuclear weapons and all this sort of stuff. It's that idea that that is what's backing up the currency. Yeah. That is why it's powerful. However, when the state goes rogue and devalues the currency, then its power begins to wane. And again, this was seen with Rome because uh, Julius Caesar introduced a coin called the Aureus, uh, which had eight grams of gold in it. So it was standardized. And obviously, by this point, um, metallurgy has got metal, metalworking technology has become advanced. So it's easy to produce standardized coins. They're all the same size, weight, look. Uh, and this particular Aureus had eight grams, in it, eight grams of gold in it. And this... Uh, maintained and helped create nearly a century of financial stability around this time. People could trust the money. 
they knew uh, they knew what it was worth they knew that they could uh, that they by having by owning one of these coins they had eight grams of gold or however much it was and this put in uh, a sense of real financial stability however then after caesar died uh, a while later emperor nero came along um and you don't need sort of great historical knowledge to know that he was one of the bad guys mm. he's the guy who fiddled while rome burned have you heard that i have yeah so nero was also did he made some great dubstep yeah he did yeah yeah that 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 will probably fly over the heads <laughs> Anyone not in, not in the dubstep scene, but yeah. But one of Nero's great uh, mistakes was to pioneer what's known as coin clipping. So this, in this case, he, he collected coins, he amassed the coins um, that were that were in use, melted them down, and then minted new ones. But these contained lower amounts of gold and silver. So he was able to make more money, but it was devalued. And how did people know the difference between the devalued stuff and the valued stuff? Well, there were quite a few. I mean, in some ways, people would have noticed, I think, uh, for a start, they would have noticed that this coin that they had was lighter. And there are also stories, I think some of them had sort of metal cores, like iron or copper cores. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was gold sort of around them. But as they got used, they kind of wore out. And then people realized that it was just sort of a non-precious metal in the middle. Um, and they were of a generally lower quality. So people um, people came to realise that the that these coins were, for were worth less. Yeah, exactly. For hey, it's, it's all money. But when people realise, when this confidence in the currency goes, this again ushered in um, financial instability, devalued the currency, it was worth less, and although this created more money for the government in the short term, the long-term effect was was economic decline. And this was, it was not the whole, the sole reason that the, M the Roman Empire fell, but uh, it was one of the it was one of these it catalysts. Was a contributing factor. This coin clipping, this devaluing of the money supply, was a major contributing factor to the eventual fall of the Roman Empire. And interestingly, the Emperor Constantine he managed to then uh, restore some stability by promising not to debase the solidus any further. So he went right, okay, it's four and a half grams of gold, and it's going to stay That's like it. that. Yeah. But he, by this point, the, the, the empire was under, was under sort of pressure from all directions. He moved east to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. A very long word. Which is now a very long word. Um, but he managed to maintain the integrity of the solidus. And this gradually over time became known as the Bezant or the Byzant. Um, and this eastern branch of the Roman Empire, which was centered around Constantinople, it survived a long time after the Western uh, Empire had collapsed, after Rome itself was overrun by the barbarians. The Eastern Roman Empire survived for many centuries after that. And one of the reasons it was able to do so was because it maintained this financial stability. It maintained the integrity of the money and people could still trust it. The Eastern Roman Empire collapsed itself when it began devaluing, devaluing its currency many centuries later. Um, but coin clipping, other forms of devaluation have happened many times since. Um, and it's usually the precursor to something bad. Yeah. Um, I also want to briefly touch on the idea of Gresham's Law. And this is the idea that bad money drives out good. And uh, to your point earlier, when you when you asked, did people did people notice that these dodgy coins were in circulation? Yeah. It's like, yeah, they did. And what would happen would that the good coins that were still in circulation, these these ones that still had eight grams of gold in them, 
they would be hoarded so that especially the rich would hoard them and people would spend the bad ones because they'd want to get rid of them you know if you've got a dodgy if you've got a dodgy, dodgy fiber, fiber yeah, yeah, yeah you'd be like there you go yeah cool i'll not pay my, my fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> there you go not my problem anymore so people would hoard the good money and spend the bad and this uh, this kind of hoarding takes money out of the economy and again it stifles innovation it stifles trade I think from all this, we can take away the fact that the state can wield power through the currency, um, but only if the people continue to have confidence in it. So once that currency gets debased, once that trust is gone, then you start having problems. And this is what you see in places like Venezuela nowadays. People have lost all faith. In all faith. Yeah. In the it's the Bolivar in uh, Venezuela. I think mm. They've lost all faith in the Bolivar. And um, obviously through all this hyperinflation and things like that, and that is why, and that has in turn led to yet more strife. Should we take another break? Let's let's sell some stuff. Yeah, let's sell some stuff. And now, for, uh, now a message from our sponsors. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. 
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Yo! Did you enjoy those messages? Yes. I found them. I found them very enlightening. Let's talk about sound money. So the collapse of the Roman Empire, as we've seen, it brought about kind of centuries of feudalism and very little in the way of progress. And it was only the advent of the Renaissance that started to see sound money flourish again. This idea of money that is that is uh, that has value, that is backed by the state, that people can have confidence in. And the pioneers of it were Italian city-states like Venice and Florence. They had they began producing coins that stuck to very rigid standards. And Venice, I think, produced the ducat, which you'll remember from The Merchant of Venice. I know is your favourite Shakespeare play. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and Florence produced the florin. From Florence and the Machine. Exactly. Florence of Florence and the Machine. Yeah. So these standards were slowly replicated across Europe as as more countries began to see, as more states began to see the value of them, and trade began to flourish as a result because people suddenly had confidence in this money again. They knew that it could hold value. They knew that they could use it to exchange. Obviously, it was easy to transport. Um, so this period also saw the rise of banking. Obviously, banking was nothing new, um, but this was it began. The technology really began to evolve, and the Medici family in Florence were the sort of pioneers of this. Um, and again, we'll talk about banking in the next episode, probably, uh, and the role that banks play in the economy. But again, this is a technological advance. This yeah, is money. Yeah, money. Money getting more useful. 
So banking brought more organization to the money system, and it also facilitated things like loans and credit, uh, which in turn promoted growth, trade, exploration, etc. And this is why the Renaissance, obviously, um, th- things like Columbus's expeditions were financed, were be able, uh, able to be financed by these by these Florentine banks, by the likes mm. of the Medici's as well. I think um, Spain as well was, which was quite rich at the time, also financed a lot of these expeditions. But only the, good came of them as well. Oh yeah, I mean only good things happen. Um, And we also get the rise of central banks later. Now, the first central bank was the Swedish central bank, which was in 1668. So we're jumping forward a little bit. Um, But it was actually formed, the Swedish Riksbank or Riksbank, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, was formed in the reaction uh, as a reaction to the collapse of Sweden's first bank. Um, So do you remember this idea of banks issuing banknotes, issuing receipts based on the reserves of gold and silver that they hold? Well, this bank, this uh, this bank in Sweden, it went too far. It had these it had this gold and silver in its vaults uh, and it was issuing these receipts, but it went too far and issued more receipts than it had uh, than it had reserves for. And this is what's known now as fractional reserve banking. Mm. Again, this is a term that we're going to come back to, especially when we talk about fiat money. This idea um, that banks not holding uh, or not holding enough in their vaults to cover all the receipts or notes that they've issued. Now, this isn't a problem so long as you don't have a bank run. So long as everyone doesn't try and come back to the bank and try and redeem those notes, because this is the thing that bank notes, these receipts um, could be exchanged. Uh, and we'll get to we'll look at this in a moment with the with the, with the gold standard. But these notes, you could take them to a bank and exchange them for precious metals, exchange them for the amount of gold or silver, or however much they promised. And this was uh, this was fine. Um, but if you started doing fractional reserve, if you issued more than you had reserves for, again, that would work as long as everyone or as long as too many people didn't come and try and redeem them. And this is what happened with Stockholm's Banco. There was a bank run. Too many people decided for whatever reason that they wanted to redeem their notes for the metal from the reserves and the bank collapsed. And in response, the Swedish central bank was set up to sort of regulate these things better. Then um, in 1694, the Bank of England was established. So this was only the second central bank. Um, And the story behind that is that William III, he wanted to finance the building of a new navy um, because the French being being those French, because the French had sunk the the previous one. Um, There'd been a sacre bleu, mon dieu. Uh, Yeah, those dastardly French had turned up, sunk sunk all our brave British ships. William III was understandably pretty put out about this. Um, He wanted to build a new one. Uh, The only way that he could see to do this was to get a loan. So uh, a lot of very rich people gathered together together. to lend him uh, to create the Bank of England. And the Bank of England then lent William £1.2 million. So, yeah, the Bank of England uh, was created in order to in order to bring this money together and then loan it to the king. Uh, and then the bank was obviously... Loan it to the king? Yeah. I thought his face was on money. Well, yeah. But at this point, the, the power of kings is sort of... Uh, waning slightly. So mm-hmm. although he, although his face may well have been on the, I, I'm not sure he would. They would have been on these banknotes. They would have been. It would have been on the coins. Maybe not on the banknotes. But the Bank of England was permitted to issue banknotes against the debt that the king owed them, and this was this debt was legitimised because William agreed to accept those banknotes as uh, as payment for taxes. So the Soviet, they kind of these these two these two forces came together. 
quite. Yeah, the 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 Bank of England lent the king the money, and the king in turn sort of guaranteed this money by saying, "We'll accept this debt." Exactly, tax. exactly, and thus putting the weight of the state and obviously the weight of this new navy that he built uh, behind these banknotes. That is interesting. So, I, like when you were talking about right, this the aircraft carriers, missiles, guns. Uh, it literally was that that sort of you you that is backing your in a way, yeah, your currency, yeah. Um, and some people it, call it, it all comes back to the sword. It all it all circles back to the sword exactly. Some people talk about the the idea of the state having the monopoly on violence, um, and I guess meaning that you know when it when push comes to shove, the state can point a sword at you mm. and go, "This you're going to accept this money. Yeah. You're going to like it because I've got lots more. We've got lots more of these swords. We've got some drones. Yeah." We've got drones and a swords and a navy. So this created an advanced new system of banking. Uh, it relied on fractional reserves. So more notes were issued than there were reserves in the vault. Um, but this still managed to fuel the growth of Britain as a naval power. And it also helped finance the Industrial Revolution. So again, money has taken a technological leap forward. And people and have unlocked this idea of... Sparked of, innovation and, and allowed, allowed sort of progress. To exactly. Happen. Yeah, more money. more. They've kind of... I guess the way to think about it is that they managed, they found an ingenious way to create more money that people will accept. And again, this is the, the, the Bank of England and the, and the state sort of interacting and one guaranteeing the other and therefore making this new form of sound money, even though it wasn't fully backed by, by gold. But um, it was backed by a state accepting it and, uh, yeah, it's intertwining it with the the tax system is is ingenious yeah yeah and it gave and because it had the backing of the state people had confidence in it people trusted it and were therefore happy to use it happy to accept it happy to trade with it happy to uh, take it overseas all this sort of stuff it was it, it had value um and this kind of moves us on quite nicely to this idea of the gold standard, which is the next sort of big technological leap forward. Uh, and this was, again, um, us in Britain. We pioneered this. Um, and it was actually the, the move to the gold standard was directed by Isaac Newton, oh. um, who some people have described as one of the probably one of the cleverest people who ever lived. Uh, and he was warden of the Royal Mint at the time. And he was instrumental in getting Britain onto a gold standard. So at this point, we should talk about what a gold standard actually means. Basically, a gold standard means that a nation's currency is valued according to a fixed amount of gold. So when Britain adopted it in 1717, the price was set to just over four pounds per fine ounce. So roughly one quarter ounce of gold to one good old British pound. So in practice, this means that a nation on the gold standard should have all of its currency in circulation backed by actual gold in its vaults. Is that the case today, though? No, not at all. Oh. Yeah, and this is something This is something that we'll cover. And this is um, when people say, oh, Bitcoin's not backed by anything. It's like, well, neither is fiat money. No. And I think the latest figure I saw was the amount of pounds backed by gold is, I think, around 4%. Oh, wow. Not much. Not much. So in theory, as we've touched on before, in theory, anyone wielding one of these banknotes could toddle along to the central bank, to the Bank of England, um, and redeem it for gold, for an actual amount of physical gold. And this was kind of the gold standard in action. Now, I just want to be really pedantic 
there are technically uh, several types of gold standard. So the gold standard. What's the gold standard for gold? Standard? What is the gold? <laughs> the absolute gold standard of gold standards. Um, so what we've been talking about is the gold bullion standard. This idea that you can uh, that you can go and actually and get physical gold for in return for your banknotes. There are two others. There's the gold species standard, meaning gold coins conform to standardized shapes, sizes, weights, and levels of purity. And we've touched on this before, haven't we, this idea of standardization. Well, that's the gold species standard. So then we have the third type of gold standard. Who knew there were so many? And this is the non-convertible gold bullion standard, the NCGBS. And this simply means, I love this, simply means that a currency is worth a certain amount of gold, but you can't actually go and convert it into actual gold. Got it. So you turn up at the it's central bank. It's worth it, and but get, you can't get it. Yeah, yeah, it's worth. Yeah, absolutely, it's worth. Yeah, it's, uh, worth it's worth a pound of gold. All right, can I have it? No, 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 no don't be ridiculous. <laughs> Again, Britain thrived on the gold standard. It remained in place until 1914. It was briefly suspended. Well, not briefly suspended. It was suspended during the Napoleonic Wars, which went on from 1797 to 1821. Very good. Very good. Um, I, I read it off the. <laughs> you read it off my notes. Yeah, <laughs> it was a band. So yeah, it was it was suspended during the Napoleonic Wars of seventeen ninety seven to eighteen twenty one, and then it was uh, it was reintroduced and then abandoned again to pay for World War One. Some sort of speculate that if the combatants in World War One had stuck to the gold standard, then everyone would have run out of money and the war wouldn't have been able to go on. Um, and sadly. This idea of kind of sound money and uh, of money backed by gold, it kind of goes out of the window a lot whenever war comes along. War is a big disruptor mm. of, 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 of money, of sound money. Um, so it was abandoned because that we needed more tank, we needed more guns, um, bullets, bombs, planes, tanks, whatever. We needed to we needed to fight the war. So the gold standard was abandoned. Um, Silver bullets. For those werewolves, exactly. All those, all those German werewolves that they were deploying on I the Western form. Front. We needed all, yeah, needed that. Um, and so, yeah, other nations had followed Britain onto the gold standard after the Napoleonic Wars. They'd gone, hey, this is a good idea. Britain's doing pretty well. It's the preeminent global power. Uh, it's got an empire sort of on on which the sun never sets. Um, and the adoption of a gold standard by European powers it sort of brought a golden a golden age to Europe. And the only thing that brought that to an end was obviously World War One. At the end of World War One, the Allied powers turned around and went, right, Germany, you're going to pay for this, quite literally. Mm. Um, and yeah, the reparations payments, they were agreed at the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, and they were ruinous. They basically Just said, right, you've got to pay for this entire war. Uh, and this led Germany down the, down the road to sort of hyperinflation because yeah. they just it didn't have, they didn't have any money. It tried to print more money. Um, and devalued its currency and everything basically Just went to pot. Yeah, everything went down the toilet. Um, so the years after World War One saw economic catastrophes across the world. Germany, as I say, was crippled by hyperinflation. Um, then we had the Great Depression in sort of 1929 to 39, uh, which devastated uh, world economies. There was mass unemployment, stagnating wages. Everything was going down the, down the toilet. Um, but this came to an end with the outbreak of World War II. 
Um, now, we can't sort of solely blame Hitler and the Nazis and their rise to power on the break from the gold standard. Roosevelt uh, made it illegal for Americans to own gold. They had to sell it back to the state at the rate of just over $20 an ounce. And then the dollar was revalued to $35 an ounce. So it's, again, this kind of a bit like Nero did, this mm. kind of idea that the currency was devalued, all the gold was taken in and then more money was made. Um, but this was done because it was felt that U.S. citizens hoarding gold was stifling growth. Um, and again, we, we this idea of Gresham's law, people holding on to, to good money, but it means there's less money in the economy if people are hoarding, if people are saving. Now, I think this raises quite a valid criticism of the gold standard because I think so far we've given the impression that if only everyone had stayed on the gold standard, everything would have been fine. Uh, economies would have flourished, etc., etc. Um, but it, there is a downside to it by which it can lead to many people, especially very wealthy people, hoarding money, uh, especially in times of crisis. And again, this slows down the economy. It makes a bad situation worse because there's less money. There's less less you can do with it. Yeah, trade, innovation, all these things are stifled because people are just hodling. Mm. Um, so the money raised by devaluing the dollar helped pay for the New Deal, which helped lift America out of the depression. Of the depression. So yeah. this idea of money was money was kind of freed up. Um, and a lot of Americans, obviously those who are holding a lot of gold, got pretty upset about it. But it seems in retrospect to have worked. Um, because, was the right call. Yeah. Yeah. Now, obviously, uh, after World War II, uh, the USA was the dominant global power. It was the only one that hadn't sort of been bombed or invaded or fought over. The Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 saw the dollar pegged to gold and all other world currency currencies were in turn pegged to the dollar. And this made the, the dollar the kind of world's reserve currency mm. um, because obviously the US was the world's strongest economy. Um, it had plenty. It was holding plenty of gold in its vaults. Everything was fine, supposedly. Um, unfortunately, the US then got involved in a place called Vietnam. Vietnam, which, as we all know, did not go well, and basically, as it did, as it did with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan in more recent times, uh, basically threw money at this war, and and again, we have war coming along to disrupt disrupt things. things yeah. yeah. So America was uh, bleeding money in Vietnam, amongst other things, um, and it was also losing out uh, to other to other nations. It was a, a trade deficit opened up, and it was finding it uh, increasingly difficult to compete. Um, China, with other yeah, the likes of China, 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 um, and yeah. So other uh, there was a trade deficit. Other countries were undercutting American workers, um, especially in things like manufacturing. Um, and there were a few instances. Uh, other countries started to kind of lose their confidence in the US uh, in this in this dollar peg. Like Vietnam. In the, in the Bretton Woods. Yeah, Vietnam, I think, had their own problems. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there would, have, there would have obviously been a lot of people who were not too happy about the Bretton Woods agreement and, and the dollar being the world's reserve currency and being pegged to gold, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's a great instance... Um, a lot of countries started to lose their confidence in, in, in this system. France... Uh, those French again decided to send a battleship over to America to pick up its gold. So in 1971, Nixon, that guy, uh, he abandoned the gold. I peg. am not a crook. I am not a crook. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he abandoned the gold peg. Uh, he took the dollar. Uh, he took, and then other currencies began to abandon their pegs to the dollar. And this was the kind of the beginning of the real era of fiat money. 
Now, we've talked, we've used this term fiat a few times. Fiat always comes up when we're talking crypto. Um, so let's just quickly uh, go over what fiat money is. So without, without currencies pegged to any other asset, uh, countries across the world now had complete control over their money supplies, how much money they produced, what it was worth, etc. Um, and this is fiat money, money that is valuable because a government says so. Fiat is Latin for let it be done. Uh, so in English, this has come to mean a decree or order, especially by those who have the authority to enforce it. So fiat money is money by decree. Fiat money doesn't have to be backed by gold or any other asset. Just Gov guns. Just guns. Yeah. Um, violence, the monopoly on violence. So governments are free to produce as much of it as they want. And um, after 1971, there were periods when this fiat money allowed for growth and prosperity again. So the lack of any gold standard meant that the supply of money basically grew unchecked. Um, banks were effectively able to create new money uh, by issuing debt. And again, this is something that we'll look at in future episodes, this, uh, the ability of banks to create money. Uh, it, it's a lot more complicated than that. But this is the this is the era of fiat money, money being created almost out of thin air. And you can see where this is leading, I think. Um, and there are a few steps along the way. An important moment is the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1999 under Bill Clinton. That meant that commercial banks uh, – now, think of commercial banks as kind of piggy banks – and investment banks think of them as casinos now these were these were these couldn't operate together before the repeal of glass-steagall but when the glass-steagall act was enacted um investment banks and commercial banks could be merged uh, and this meant that the kind of casino banks were able to take the money from savings banks, you know, the money and that gamble carefully and gamble with it. Exactly. And this eventually led to the crash of 2008, where banks had created, they basically created so many complicated derivative products and debt that the whole system basically imploded. But the crash of 2008 obviously um, was the kind of the low point for fiat money. And this is what brought us to the invention of Bitcoin and the birth of cryptocurrencies. And this, again, is something we're going to cover in the next episode. We're going to look at why Bitcoin was invented, what it was invented in reaction to, um, and the problems it looked to solve. So, should we wrap things up? Yeah. How, how have you found today? Has it been a uh, wild ride? Wild is not the word I would use. <laughs> Fascinating is. Um, I didn't realise that um, uh, sort of currencies and... Um, armies were so closely linked yeah um the the the, the ability of money to uh, sort of be a catalyst for innovation mm. um is a lot clearer now yeah um and how countries um have sort of harnessed um you know that that power and allowed its its citizens to sort of flourish um has been real eye opener um Good. War is a distributor, but obviously it's a bit more complicated with, with, with things like that. But yeah, no, it's been fascinating. Really, really it has been quite interesting. Great. Yeah. And I think there's so much, again, this idea of money as a technology evolving over time. I yeah. Think and, a, and a facilitator, it's a technology that allows other tech to be driven. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of it's greased the wheels, hasn't it? And yeah. It's, it, it's easy to it's easy to think um, that if if we were still trading with shells or cows or or just even lumps of metal, 
we would still be in a pretty primitive state. Mm. Uh, the, the, the great leaps forward, the innovations, the expeditions, the discoveries, all this, all this sort of stuff, it wouldn't have been possible without money being created behind yeah. it. And yeah, this technology has done wonderful things. And as it's evolved, it's let us do more. Um, and the ability to create new money has made us richer. But it, obviously, as we've seen, it's come with with dangers. Um, and the unchecked creation of new money today is obviously driving fears of inflation. Um, but I guess the I guess what we we can take away is that cryptocurrency is basically the latest technological innovation yeah. of money. It's the latest stage. It's the iPhone. 14. What iPhone are we on now? iTunes, iPhone uh, 13. It's, it's the been, iPhone 13. Well, maybe it is the iPhone 14 because well, maybe, it, is, yeah. it, is, it is the future. Well, perhaps it's even more. Perhaps it's the iPhone itself because, I mean, the iPhone was such a big moment, wasn't it? I mean, there are iPhones or iPhones now. It's just. But actually, the cryptocurrency is this latest technological leap. It's the iPhone of money. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's evolved to combat some of the problems with the modern monetary system. Um, and yeah, it's the latest. It's the latest step on the path, and it's going to be. It's going to be so interesting over the it's next in, few episodes. Yeah, it was interesting to see how this latest technology or latest form of financial technology greases the wheels of future innovation. Exactly. Like, exactly. And a lot of people, I think, with any new technology, people are always going to be suspicious of it. Um, they're always going to have their doubts and they're going to go, well, how does this work? Is this, is well, this what is this glass bead? Yeah. <laughs> what is this? What uh, is this deer skin? <laughs> what is this gold peg? Yeah. Paper money, it'll never catch on. Yeah. Yeah. Chickens, no. <laughs> Give me my turnips. Yeah. Are you a turnip or are you a, <laughs> are you a chicken? <laughs> what is this chicken money? Yeah. Cri yeah. Cryptocurrency, it's, um, yeah, people are naturally still suspicious of it, but it's going to open up so many new opportunities. I think this has been really fun. Let's flush this toilet. Get out of uh, Elon's... Uh, bathroom. Bathroom. Yeah. I think, yeah. we Finish we powdering our noses and leave. We don't want to be caught in here. No. I think we'd have too many questions to answer. Thanks, folks. Bye. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Coin Bureau Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 